the small prophecy of Habakkuk is perhaps one of those that you might easily miss in the scriptures. The 12 minor prophets uh, have always been a little bit of a challenge for me to find in the Bible, but nonetheless, the prophet Habakkuk, particularly in chapter 2, verses 4, or verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith, was a mountaintop like no other that reverberated through history and certainly finds itself with a very prominent place in the New Testament. It was the heart cry of the Reformation uh, and all associated with uh, not a passage like Habakkuk 2.4, but with Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. And it is uh, my goal this morning to explore what it is that the Lord revealed to Habakkuk and also what he has to tell us primarily about faith, the great perceived need of the day, that which energizes so much anxiety among us, that thing for which people involve themselves in countless activities to attempt to determine is this, what is going to happen? What does the future hold? What will become of me? What will happen tomorrow, next week, next year? And why? Why will these things happen? As is often the case, God's ultimate answer to that question takes into account something altogether different than the question anticipates. And God's personal and timely interaction with the prophet Habakkuk directly addresses this very issue with a comprehensive and complete answer. And so I would draw your attention to the three chapters in the book of Habakkuk here as we look into what it is that the Lord would say to us this morning. And we begin with this simple idea that starts the book out, and that is uh, what is referred to sometimes as Habakkuk's two complaints. The first shows up here uh, in chapter 1. Really, both of them are here in chapter 1. Uh, and it really is uh, more in the form of a, of a lament, like a, like a psalm, like one of the psalmists would come to the Lord with a concern that he has, and that's very much the case with Habakkuk. As a matter of fact, you will notice that this uh, is written uh, as a hymn or poetry. And so we'll see the way the Lord works in it. But his first lament here begins in verse 3, or really verse 2 of chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not say. Why do you make me to see iniquity? And why do you look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, of course, the context that Habakkuk is writing in is not unlike our own context. Habakkuk asked the question, O Lord, why do you make me to see iniquity? It does seem that we're, in fact, surrounded by Not only our own sins, but the sins of those around us and all of the effects of those sins. 
It seems overwhelming. And, and then Habakkuk goes on to say, and you look idly by. Now this is an immature accusation by Habakkuk to propose that God looks at anything idly. But nonetheless, we see the Lord's answer and Habakkuk's great confidence that God would hear him and speak to his soul. But nonetheless, we, we are in this situation and it goes on, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, they grow, and the law is paralyzed. Well, why is that? Because the, the wicked encircle, encircle the righteous. That is, a, that is a term that is used for the expectation of complete defeat. When an enemy is encircled, they're surrounded. Where else will they go? And that's, the, that's what Habakkuk is up against here. Uh, and then, of course, this idea is that the Lord is not paying attention, that he's somehow ambivalent to the situation at hand. Now, we see the Lord's answer uh, to the very first lament that he has here in verse 5. He says, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, the book of Philippians tells us the exact same thing. The book of Philippians urges us to pray and says, and says that when you least expect it, expect it. That is the Lord's answer, the Lord's purpose, the Lord's revelation, the Lord's will to be revealed, the Lord's work, the Lord's hand to be shown. God tells Habakkuk that a terrible storm of God's wrath is about to burst upon Judah. Israel is already off the scene at this time in the nation. Israel has been defeated by another wicked nation. And so Habakkuk looks around and he sees violence and injustice. And he isn't talking about other nations. We've seen, we've seen God's prophets address other nations. But Habakkuk is most certainly not addressing other nations in this first lament. He's addressing his own nation of Judah. Oh God, there are those who have claimed that they're associated with your covenant that live among me that are, that are raking in prophets over your people. And there's violence. And justice is encircled. It, it cannot move. Justice and the righteous can't move. They're encircled by the wicked. And yet you, it appears that you look idly on and God says, no, no, I'm... I'm uh, I'm not ambivalent to this. God harnesses the bitter and hasty nation of Babylon characterized by dreaded violence to bring judgment upon Judah. And in his second lament, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord? So Habakkuk takes in God's answer. Right? He, he takes in God's answer. He addresses this, this issue and then it brings up another issue. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, 
We, we shall not die. O oh Lord, You have ordained them as judgment. O oh, You, O oh Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He says, are you not my eternal holy God? You've ordained them for judgment? Them? You, those people? Those who, who have a reputation for wickedness? We've already heard the prophet Jonah was happy to see them completely obliviated. But God saved them. But we see now that He has raised up the nation of Babylon, which wasn't built in a day. And we see here her ultimate purpose and then her ultimate demise when she's fulfilled her long-standing end. And that is used as a crooked stick to straighten the people of God. So that's what the Lord said initially. That's Habakkuk's lament. And then as I had mentioned to some of us on Wednesday, we see that Habakkuk very confidently took his post, as it were, in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I hope you have a special place for your time with the Lord every day. A special location, perhaps where you can look around and see uh, some pleasant familiarities. I, as you have, I'm sure, been in places occasionally where there were no pleasant familiarities to enter into that quiet time each morning, but nonetheless you did that. But it made all the more you appreciate those pleasant familiarities with where it was that you typically go when you read the Word of God, when you, when you bring your concerns to the Lord and when you hear from Him by the power of the Holy Spirit through His written Word. And that's what Habakkuk is saying here in verse 1 of chapter 2. He's, he's saying the same thing, this spiritual discipline he is revealing to us. I will take my stand at my watchpost, this place with which I'm familiar. You know my watchpost, that place where I hear from God. And Habakkuk is saying that I will station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me. His great confidence is expressed in the Lord. He will answer me. I know He will. Not because I control Him, not because I pull His string, not because I'm a beauty spot in the eyes of God, but because He is God. He is holy and righteous, but He is also personal. Just as Abraham and Moses spoke to God as one man does another, we know that He speaks to us as well. The Lord answers Habakkuk, Verse 3, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. That is, it will not be deceptive or deceive. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord is saying, what I have told you, Habakkuk, will come to pass. You can bet on it. You can be assured of it.
He encourages him to patience as he awaits the Lord's fulfillment of all that he will bring to pass. And then he introduces this absolutely monumental, epic declaration about what Habakkuk was already entering into as an individual attached redeemingly to God in verse 4 of chapter 2. And verse 4 of chapter 2 is a contrast between those who are God's people and those who are not. It's a very simple, it's a very plain contrast. As a matter of fact, it isn't unassociated with the declaration in verse 2. Write the vision, make it plain on tables that he may run who reads it. Let no one question. Let all be able and have access to what it is that I'm going to say. Behold, His soul, those who are not in God, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within Him. But the righteous shall live by His faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous. That isn't those who are perfect, for no man is perfect. The Psalms make it clear. There are none righteous, no, not one. In that sense of perfection... But God's redeemed, those elect, those whom He has chosen to call to Himself. The righteous shall live. Every word in this phrase is urgently important to us. Live by His faith. The righteous shall live by His faith. Everything else that follows in this prophecy is associated with chapter 2 at verse 4. Now he goes on and he addresses the other laments that Habakkuk has brought. In verses 6 through 13 of chapter 2, he proclaims woe to the Chaldeans, whom God will use to bring judgment upon Israel. He assures Habakkuk that the Chaldeans will not have the last act. But in fact, 2.14 indicates that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk had already been brought to understand that something was about to happen. That a terrible storm was going to be unleashed upon Judah in the form of Babylon coming and bringing judgment. But something far more serious and permanent is about to happen to Babylon. But yet, that is not the end. 
The end state is right here in 2.14. The earth will in fact be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, Habakkuk would not live, nor have we lived to see that. But look at the confidence that he expresses as he anticipates that the Lord will answer. And we see the final expression of Habakkuk's faith in the very last verses that were read in your hearing of chapter 3. 2 verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. By his faith. So, that begs the question, what is faith? What is faith? The Apostle Paul uses... Habakkuk 2.4 is a foundational text for his proclamation of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, the Bible says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by his faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Again, the question at hand is, what is faith? What is faith? Well, let's look at what all the Scriptures say about it. We've already looked briefly at what the Apostle Paul understood Habakkuk to be saying in Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk, as I had mentioned before, can be called a forerunner of the Reformation. His key concept greatly influenced Luther and Calvin. We could think of it perhaps as persevering and obedient trust in God, which provides the only meaningful existence in this present world. Persevering in obedient trust in God, which provides the only meaningful existence in this present world. I depended upon Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology for the structure of this exposition of the biblical understanding of faith. It's Old Testament terms and meanings. The word aman used in the Old Testament indicates to be firm, established, the assent given to a testimony. Batak means to confide in, to lean upon, to trust. Tasa has to do with hiding oneself, to plea, to flee for refuge. The primary New Testament term is pistis. The idea is that it's a conviction based on confidence in a person and his testimony. It presupposes a personal relation to the object of confidence. 
These, these are the meanings of the words. Right? What does the meaning of the word faith mean? It means, it means that based on a personal relationship with an object of confidence... More than an intellectual conviction that a person is reliable. It's a going out of oneself to rest in another. Confidence, trust, trustful reliance, this idea of faith. There are some particular expressions used to describe the activity of faith. In other words, what does it look like? Some I think have helpfully uh, described faith as the organ of salvation. The organ of salvation. Not like musical organ, but like lungs, heart, that organ in the body. And you will, of course, recognize that it is non-physical. We know that the Bible reveals that we are two-part beings. We're physical and non-physical. We're souls, primarily, that have bodies. And I would encourage you to think of it in those terms. We often think that we're like bodies with souls. But I would urge you to think of yourself as a soul. That is the eternal part of you that has a body. It will allow you to place the emphasis in the right place, and that is on spirituality. We are not rejecting flesh. To be fleshly is not to be sinful. The Lord Jesus shows us that. And in heaven, we will be fleshly and not sinful. Praise God. But let us consider that we're souls with bodies, and that faith is the organ of salvation. Sometimes this faith is described as looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That is, whoever looks to Him may have eternal life. Also, in Matthew and John, we have this idea of hungering and thirsting. What does faith do? Faith hungers and thirsts for that which will only satisfy And saving faith is like the corresponding eating and drinking. There is a hungering and a thirsting. But God never leaves us as merely hungering and thirsting. He satisfies us with eating and drinking. And these are expressions of faith. Also, coming to Christ and receiving Him. Coming to Christ and receiving Him. The Bible says in John chapter 5, verse 39, 
As the Lord Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 7:37 on the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink receiving Christ stresses that faith is an appropriating organ faith is an appropriating organ Now, associated with Habakkuk chapter 2, the righteous shall live by faith, perhaps at this point a helpful illustration would assist us. I'd like to talk a little bit about your lungs. Now, when uh, a little baby seems to have the ability of crying very loudly, we sometimes say, that child has lungs. And sometimes when you look at a runner who seems to run effortlessly with the wind, you might say something like, wow, that guy's got some lungs. But it's important that we would make and establish the fact that we should realize that the baby and the runner use their lungs actually all the time. Not just when they're running or crying. We should probably admit that we may think of faith as something that we only use to access justification. But just like your lungs, you can't live without your lungs. You can't live without your lungs. It is true you can't run or cry without lungs. But you can't live without your lungs. And this is the nature with which God makes the statement, the righteous live by faith. They live by faith. It's not just, it's not this one and done organ in your body that has a single use that will never be used again. It is this organ that we recognize can grow and be built and strengthen faith. Growing in faith. It is the organ that we live with. Calvin says of faith, it is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor towards us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ and revealed in our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Heidelberg Catechism indicates that true faith is not only a sure knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in His Word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the Gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. The Shorter Catechism definition of faith is written in your bulletin. 
The reformers were unanimous and explicit in teaching that justifying faith does not justify by any meritorious or inherent efficacy of its own, but only as the instrument for receiving or laying hold on what God has provided in the merit of Christ. Faith in the Old Testament. The New Testament writers, as they address this idea of faith, they never detected or anticipated or thought of themselves as declaring something different in the New Testament as that which had already been declared in the Old Testament. There was no different fundamental principle of religious life for themselves. The New Testament writers regarded Abraham's faith as that which was the model for faith in the new. They regard his faith as the type of all true believers, a faith that can be characterized comprehensively as a faith that didn't excuse me, need to know where it took him, but a faith that knew with whom it was going. God. Now, this is perhaps one of the most acute and helpful illustrations and explanations and expressions of faith. It's very simply shown in the character of Abram. And that is this, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Abram didn't know whither he was going, but he knew with whom he was going. He didn't know whither he was going. This is not a Texas word. He didn't know where he was going. But he knew who he was going with. And that was completely satisfactory to Abram. That is perhaps the most notable and helpful expression of saving faith. And we see this illustrated perfectly and comprehensively in this prophecy that Habakkuk is used by the Holy Spirit to give us. The New Testament writers did not treat faith as a novelty of the New Testament. The giving of the law did not bring a fundamental change in Israel's religion. It was not substituted for the promise and faith was not supplanted by works. What does faith look like in the New Testament? Well, in the Gospels we see Jesus constantly offering Himself as the object of faith. Again, the subject matter is faith. We've discussed the words. We've discussed its meaning. We've discussed its work in the Reformation. We've discussed what it looks like in the Old Testament. And now as we look at the New Testament, we look at the Gospels. Jesus is constantly offering Himself as the object of saving faith. The same object that Abram had. In the Acts, faith becomes the formative principle of the new community. What was it? about this community, it was faith. The epistles of Paul, contending with the ingrained legalism of Jewish thought, Paul had to vindicate the position of faith as the only instrument of salvation. The only instrument of salvation. It was not, nor was it ever, set beside legalism. 
The epistle to the Hebrews, Christ is regarded as the only object of saving faith. He had to deal not with the danger of falling back into legalism, but with the danger of falling into despair. Faith is spoken of as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You ask a question, what is faith? Well, go no further than Hebrews chapter 11, the assurance of things hoped for. That's a long list. The conviction of things not seen. In the epistles of Peter, Peter deals with readers that are in danger of becoming discouraged. The great challenges they faced in their day led Peter to especially emphasize the relationship of faith to the final consummation of salvation. We see that here in Habakkuk. The writings of John. John had to contend with a false emphasis on knowledge. Secret knowledge. Gnosticism, which despised a simple childlike faith. He makes it a point to give much attention to the blessings of faith and insists on the certain ultimate glory of the redeemed. Now we look at chapter 3. Verses 17 to 19. So we have in 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk brings two complaints. He kind of gets a bonus on his first complaint. It's kind of a 1A and a 1B. And then as the Lord answers Habakkuk, we see that it brings up another issue as he concerns himself with why God would use the crooked stick of Babylon to straighten his people, Judah. But yet, nonetheless, foundationally in all of it is this idea of living by faith. And as we would anticipate in chapter 2, verse 1, as Habakkuk confidently takes his stand, we see really the culmination of these thoughts as Habakkuk affirms this very thing, the righteous shall live by faith in chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And this is a hymn. It is directed to the choir master. B.B. Warfield himself believed that there are some tenets of our faith that should only be sung. Listen as Habakkuk expresses that which is certainly attached to a living faith that God is directly expressing in chapter 2, verse 4. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. God has directed Habakkuk to a certain course of action, to a certain way of living, associated not with a manby-pamby kind of conviction, but with an absolute certainty that really embodies the idea of hope. Hope is not a maybe-so kind of thing in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, as R.C. Sproul would indicate, there appears to not be an English word, actually, that actually would embody what we are seeing in the Bible that is translated as hope. It is a certainty of that which God has said. And it's just as if, with great conviction, Habakkuk is set on a course of action and every morning the Lord would come to Habakkuk and he would say, Habakkuk, which course are you heading? And he would say, I am heading on that course which you have placed me on. And he says, very good. Well done, good and faithful servant. The old... King James translates the last phrase in verse 19 as hinds feet in high places. Now, hind is a deer. It's translated in likely the copy of God's Word you're holding in your hand as deer. But nonetheless, it's hard to deny the poetic beauty of hinds feet in high places. An interesting example at the end of such a powerful prophecy. Likely you've seen a deer in the lowlands, in the ground that seems that even a child would have confidence walking on. There's certainty there. But that isn't the example that is used here. No, it's it's hinds feet in high places. It's not the inviting atmosphere of safety. But it's the danger and uncertainty of the life that God has given us. But in that life, lived by faith, He's saying that we can and should be and have every reason to be confident, as confident as the nimble deer in high places, who's also described as sure-footed. That means that He doesn't slip. And these are, these are uh, examples and illustrations that are often used by those who are rightly and savingly attached to God. My foot almost slipped. 
Oh Lord, keep my foot from slipping. This is all an allusion to hinds feet in high places. Now a few portions of application. It speaks to our own nation, of course. We know we're ripe for judgment. Gospel blessings have been heaped upon our nation. Our nation's founding documents actually include words that everyone understands as the uncreated Creator. Will we be shocked at judgment brought from a thoroughgoing atheistic communist nation that treats its own citizens like cattle? And yet, Habakkuk faced the same thing. And every morning it's as if God says, Habakkuk, which course are you steering today? And Habakkuk says, I'm still on that same course, Lord. Because I know with whom I'm going. I know with whom I'm going, and it is God. It speaks to us as individuals. Ultimately, as the redeemed, we long to know. What do we long to know? That everything's going to be okay. We've already learned as God's redeemed, we, we have in the back of our minds a perhaps not a thoroughgoing, but a beginning of a recognition to understand that it is the person of God who is the most important piece of what's going to happen and where I'm going. Habakkuk answered those questions and God reframed the question completely and assured Habakkuk that he understood that it wasn't any of those two questions that really matter. What the real question that matters is, who are you going with? And then he's firmly beginning to understand that it is God with whom I am going. And so therefore, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. That's not a mark of ambivalence. That that doesn't look like us sitting in an easy chair. That doesn't look like that. But it's a confident conviction That we follow the Lord. We stay on course. That we continue to implement and walk in the ways of God. We can be like the nimble and well-adapted deer. Not in the inviting atmosphere of safety, but in the high places characterized by danger and uncertainty. You know that sometimes you like danger. And you like danger particularly when you're certain that everything's going to be okay. And that's the kind of danger that God brings us into. For His own glory and for our own good. Habakkuk is a great model for this. Even in the midst of reproof and anticipating a storm of judgment, Habakkuk models for us quiet trust and all 
our knowing, loving, and kind, personal God. Habakkuk helps us understand that the organ of faith in an individual believer is far more integral to life in Christ than merely assessing justification and right standing with God. As 2.4 says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. I draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 11 for the final and comprehensive definition of this concept. To give us a full answer. What is faith? I may not make it through Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, and even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called 
their God, for He has prepared for them a city. 